0: Salams, y'all, welcome to Zina's Bukala, a duty to memory and possibility. This podcast is both a call to remember what's always been sitting deep within our bones and an invitation for new stories to emerge, an opportunity to speak ourselves and our futures into existence. It's for the stories that you'd never hear about in school, for the words that move us forward into healing and liberation. And it's most definitely a nod to our ancestors. And I am so 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 excited to be able to welcome and introduce y'all to Edzie. How you doing? Hi. I'm
1: doing good. Thank you for having me. greetings everyone.
0: Yes, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. Edzie is a multimedia insurrectionary artist and organizer. Her work entails political education while also providing material support to marginalized and colonized communities. She is a creator. She is a self-distributor of zines, a published writer. She is a Black, Blackfeet-descended, non-enrolled, trans-Panay badass based in Los Angeles. And I want to give you a shout out for this because you were recently the first Mellon Foundation artist in residence for the feminist and gender studies programs of Colorado College. MashaAllah, congratulations. You.
1: Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, appreciation. Thank you so much for, yeah, I'm honored to be asked to be on the show. I recently listened to one of the interviews with Dia. It was such a good show. Dio's really amazing, really, really good, good program. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again for being here. You're a writer, you're a poet, you're a performer, you're a public speaker, you're a visual artist, you're in a band, firesider. I guess my first question <laughs> is, is this a new band? Is this has this band been around? Tell us all the things.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the band has been around since 2020 during the pandemic. Me and my bandmate, Don, Vim Crony, yeah, we just formed this band just by sharing music and don was just like would you be interested in you know performing a song And just would like send me music and i would just you know put lyrics to it uh i've been doing that for a few artists uh would just send me some beats and i would either scream or sing to it depending on the mood you know I kind Mm -hmm. of go all over the place in terms of genre it's a really it's just one of those kinds of creative endeavors that hasn't been completely like commodified (laughs) and by that I mean like some of like my artistry like visual artistry for example has like I, I struggle around that nowadays because I have some unpleasant experiences with scope creeping, i.e. like people hiring me to to do art commissions, but like not giving like good parameters or even like restrictions around like how much they're going to be involved. So like the, the kind of additions and input becomes really ongoing and exhausting. And I don't think people think about like artists as like, you know things take time, and sometimes things are hard to do or it might be hard to remove via you know like depending on what kind of medium you're you're using, it becomes homework sometimes for me, and I never really was good at homework or taking like those kinds of instructions when it comes to my creativity. I'm just kind of always like you know creating the thing when I want like how I want and so like when it comes to yeah just getting paid for it it becomes a little a little unpleasant but sometimes you just got to do it to to survive and stuff
0: Mm mm-hmm when I hear you say instructions, I hear you say also like limitations—the ways that yeah. artists are are being limited. I did a recently an episode with Jackie Fawn, who's a phenomenal visual artist, um, uh-huh. who actually goes into that as well. Just like what you have to look out for as as an artist to protect your craft and protect your energy uh-huh. too, right? And I want to do you know a little Patreon plug. You have you have a Patreon page, and there's just so much content. I'll include it in the promo for this for this episode. But there's just so you know, there's y'all get to Patreon and follow or subscribe to Edzie's what is it page or channel? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's a it's a
1: page, I guess. It's Patreon.com/slash uh, you are E V O L T. Thank you so much. Yeah, huge fan of Jackie Fonz as well. I think art's really hard under capitalism, and it and it feels. I I feel like I've had to I had to say no to a lot of different people who wanted to use my art for for different reasons. I I recently said no to a um an Amazon project because <laughs> I was like I. You know, yeah, I just don't, I just don't agree with Amazon's practices, and like, I think, you know, sometimes people they can't they can't afford to say no, um, right. But sometimes you have to like set precedent for like other other artists. I was just talking to a friend about how sometimes speaking gigs, you know, from colleges might try to sell you short or might try to exploit you. Um, you have these Ivy Leagues not even wanting to pay. Mm -hmm. some speakers for their experiences like and it's just really unfair because these institutions owe us as like black and indigenous people so much that uh it's a slap in the face for them to just like think that they can like get away with not you know honoring your honoring that and like paying you yeah for your cultural competency
0: yeah I've heard that story so many times of other folks not getting paid by the folks who have the most money, right? Like these. Right, right. And what feels so just like unfair about it is your words stay with people. You know, the things that you're sharing in one hour in a lecture is going to stay with people for months, years to come too. you know, and this is art stays, words stay, you know, that's knowledge that you're going to have with you forever. So pay up, just straight up pay up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah I,
1: if it's something like you know when it comes to autonomous community spaces that's mm-hmm. something that I will literally do for free but depending on you know I I can't I, I've definitely slowed down when it comes to like workshops and speaking things for autonomous spaces or just in general because I <laughs> I'm struggling with burnout uh, after like a dec- over a decade of doing you know this kind of work i'm really trying to to heal myself these days and really plunge into an art practice that isn't necessarily commodified and, and yeah my patreon is like kind of helping me do that a little bit
0: right on i'm so glad you're doing that for yourself centering your own wellness Before we get into, you know, the work, the organizing that you've been doing for so long, I want to ask, like, how how did you find your way? Again, so many different modes of expression, artistic expressions. How did you find your way to art? Or maybe how did art find its way to you? What drives you to to create in the ways that you do? I think trauma
1: <laughs>
0: well yeah like I I do think
1: that a lot of different kinds of traumas have led me to utilize my art for coping and healing uh, I think before the trauma though I did I do remember my mother doing a lot of art practices herself like sculpting she used to make these like amazing ceramic uh, horses she was a very artistic person and you know my my older sisters were they were also very artistically inclined in college and in high school so for me I was always just learning from them and even my father was you know Pretty musically inclined, I believe. Being being black, I think the reason why there is so many like sonically inclined uh, black folks is for obvious uh, reasons of like intergenerational kind of sharing of like your cultures. I'm not as connected to. Uh, indigenous cultures based on my grandmother's side of the family but um, you know it's like art is is like part of of the culture and I'm sure whatever song practices that she passed down to my father he passed down to to me and us and uh, yeah that's just kind of like what I've always been utilizing to, to just, to just deal, you know, that I, I, I experienced a lot of isolation based on my race, based on my gender expression. So that's all I've kind of had was these kinds of practices or this kind of like thinking where, yeah, that's, that's all I really wanted to do. And then I feel like the calling came when when social movements started becoming more prevalent just like having opportunities to share my art on a massive scale through like uh initially screen printing I was part of the Occupy movement which was like hella problematic and like Mm -hmm. really messy I'm sure but I still you know there were people who who opted in who were already doing work who like had shown me that like you know this is this social movement might be temporary, but other people have been doing this kind of thing and like doing you know autonomous like offshoots of like queer and trans uh, POC zine writing. A lot of my art pre transition and pre like movement work was very centered around gender nonconformity I would illustrate certain people in the world the very rare people in the world who were gender nonconforming I was like high key obsessed with and would like illustrate them and then when this these social movements came and people were like oh we want to like create art of like gender nonconforming and queer people I was like oh I already have that and just, you know, like, it was like I was waiting for this platform to, like, you know, show my art. I think what humbled me about, like, even being involved in, in that movement, but creating, you know, our own just autonomous, like, mutual aid programs or or art community endeavors. But with screen printing, you know, all of these, like, slogans or just other art I created, it, it humbled me a lot because... um it was just really amazing seeing like hundreds if not thousands of people like wearing some of the things that I had just screen printed and people might not even really know who I who I was it helped me to like yeah not really care so much that I I would be recognized by like institutions or museums like because I was like I'm already people already are wearing my stuff like what more do I do I need? And then later, you know, being introduced by comrades who are in colleges who would like introduce our our zines and literature to their college professors, and their professors being really wowed at the art, but also the analysis that we had in in yes. the zines. And um, yeah, was like this is the kind of shit that like we are teaching, but it's like from younger younger folks who are who have experienced houselessness who are living on the street who are living in poverty you know yeah they would bring us to the schools and that was kind of my first experiences with like the college circuit because I you know a lot of people think I I have a lot all this college experience and I'm like nah (laughs) like I I didn't even graduate uh, high school I didn't have any kind of formal education I've taught at a, a lot of colleges or done workshops and things, you know, out of experience. And I, I appreciate that because I think it's important for us all to kind of transform and or even abolish the kind of quote unquote credentials and steps that are often imposed on us to acquire knowledge and share it. Because yeah, you can you can learn so much from people who don't have that kind of scholastic aptitude um, you can learn so much from you know the land and from you know nature and you don't have to learn you know just from from the classroom very much the opposite is what I like to yeah just practice then I guess
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would even say you learn more (laughs) from people Mm -hmm. without credentials and, you know, all the steps that you're mentioning. I, I, I know that I have. I've learned the most important things. I've, I've needed to learn in this lifetime to be right with my own purpose and my own path from people who, who are not in these institutions and not like conforming because you know once you're, once you're a professor you have certain curriculum you have certain you have certain Mm -hmm. rules you have certain things you have to follow and even if your heart is in the right place even if you know things you might not always be able to say in those spaces. Um, and yeah, so I, I appreciate you saying that. And I also really appreciate you naming um the role of art, you know, just like the importance of art in our movements. It's it's beautiful to hear like your own trajectory and your own path of like how you were brought to right where you needed to be, um, even though yes, Occupy was messy as fuck, but it was also, yeah, there was some good that came out of it, of out of the experience. But I think what you're naming is like the role of art in, in educating people, People. And I love that just like your art, you know, just on people's shirts around the community. And there's, there's just a very important place for art in movement building that I don't think is, we don't always recognize the artist behind the art. You know, like so much of what we learn, so much of what moves us is, you know, today through social media, like the beautiful visuals that y'all create and put out there, the the music and whatnot. And how do we show up for the artists and how do we throw down for the artists? How do we make sure the artists are taken care of? Because y'all are literally giving us pieces of your soul and like giving us medicine, right? And it's like, what do we do to make sure that you're replenished and to make sure that that you're cared for. And even though I appreciate what you're saying about humility, right, not needing to be recognized by whatever, but like, yeah, I just think there's sometimes a lack of reciprocity and how much we take from you, and how much we get and learn from you versus the ways that you're, you're just held down and and cared for.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, I I appreciate the people who do let that be known. Um, uh, So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And you know, I have a, a friend, Dylan Sung, who, like, talks about how so many people are artists and there's art practice that is very much entwined with uh, social movements. And I think the reason why I I have a hard time these days, at least, you know, creating art just for myself is because so much of my art practice was wrapped up in in organizing and I think when it comes to organizing you know there's a lot of really amazing things that happen of course and like a lot of like beautiful things that we are fighting for but it there's still a lot of you know, traumas that we experience from the state or white supremacists and targeting. And then, you know, there's also the intramural uh, violence that exists when it comes to, you know, comrades or relatives who internalize uh, patriarchal or colonial understandings of the world. And yeah, they might not want to acknowledge harms that they committed or even like uh, sexual assault mm. and it becomes really 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 uh yeah it <laughs> becomes really really hard to continue and I I, I give kudos to the comrade um relatives who you know persevere and continue some of the movement elders and things like that because it's you know they don't call it a struggle for for nothing like it's it's really, really been a struggle. Yeah, I just have so much appreciation for the community um, and people that I do know and love because uh, without them, I, I'm i really nothing, you know? It's, it's like, yeah, really, really doing what I can to give back and my, I feel like my art practice is just a reflection um, of that appreciation.
0: I want to I want to shift this into some of the organizing, some of the organizing that you've 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 done that you're doing. Um, like you said, this is you know the struggle is lifelong, and so it's okay to take breaks and whatnot. But you are one of the very few people in the world that. I see as really walking the talk when it comes to abolition and abolition as a value, as like an organizing principle, as a way of life. What kind of advice do you have for folks who are, you know, those uh, those of us who, who aim for that, but are really like abolitionists in training? What are some some mm-hmm. words of advice or or words of caution even?
1: Yeah, I think def- I'm definitely coming from a place of, being it still being an abolitionist in training I don't I don't think that like I I know everything there is to know on the history of abolition and things like that like I I I guess I I don't even really I might not even identify as an abolitionist only because I hold fast to the values of that but I also am aware of like what abolition has become Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's widely become co-opted, and I don't think we need to necessarily throw it out. But I, I think for me, you know, yeah, I'm just I'm just careful about how, how I'm how I'm naming myself, and I think the things that I've all often wanted to name myself as being an anti-authoritarian or an insurrectionary. Um, were often things that you can't necessarily like hold down or they're not as easily co-optable. But then, you know, I, I was very wrong when it comes to uh, insurrectionary. I was like, they can't co-opt that. But, you know, like January 6th, yeah, 2020, there was, you know, the, the so-called quote-unquote insurrection that happened. And when it comes to things like that, I think for me, the state and the state's media is doing all it can to confuse uh, the hearts and the minds of the people. You know, the very many people that uh, it can, you know, sell its media to, and that to me was very much, much a a push uh, from the media to associate insurrection with white supremacy and far right disarray. Because as we all know, insurrections have historically not come from the top down. Black and indigenous insurrections have existed throughout, you know, the context of the Americas uh, for centuries. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's very prudent, careful, planning on the part of the state, you know, this kind of uh, counterinsurgency, I would call it counterinsurgency tactics, because everybody and their mom was like, like, oh, the white, white insurrectionaries. And, you know, it just became about like like suddenly this, this word that no one was ever using (laughs) becomes like synonymous with white supremacy and conservatism. It did its job. But uh, to answer your question, I just want to like acknowledge that I think it's, yeah, really, really challenging for people to um, come into these kinds of spaces, these abolitionist spaces without, you know, seeing the kind of like the top names within, within the abolition kind of world and not feel like they don't have much to offer based on them not having the kind of credentials or ties to institutions or, you know, it's, it's a lot of the same people who are allotted as like the abolitionists to go to. And I I think there is a lot of knowledge that some of these folks do have. But I think there are different kinds of abolition that we need to kind of not conflate altogether and we need to make distinctions you know there's non-profit abolition there's sex work abolition you know there's all kinds of abolition that exists now that can be in tension with with one another you know rigorous study is is really important i think it kind of comes naturally when you're curious but also practice. It's like I think I came on to into abolition or like, I guess knowing just knowing the histories uh, of of what my ancestors have been been doing for for decades um, and centuries. <clears throat> and I think what gets uh, thrown out, in a lot of the current nonprofit abolition practice is often is is often removing the kinds of necessary steps my ancestors took to get free. And these might not be the steps that are are going to get you funding from, you know, a, a historically white foundation. If you're telling people that like, yeah, my ancestors like literally slaughtered their their masters in order Mm -hmm. to free themselves from the ownership of said masters, these are, you know, and and you get into a whole other mess of um, understanding of abolition when you start talking about like violence in particular and like, what is violence and like how, yeah, we don't want to perpetuate cultures of violence and punishment. But there are definitely ancestors who have utilized self-defense and violent counter-violence in order to uh, survive, in order to uh, liberate themselves or their loved ones. I would just say to people who are getting involved in it, is just be like, be aware of these distinctions and what kind of abolition you want to be involved with because it's not it isn't all the same yeah I'm very weary of 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 what it what it is the the more popular kind of conversations of abolition sound more and more like reform and more and more like we're just trying to pull money out of the pockets of the police and not necessarily do away with the institution as a whole and i'm like the institution as a whole is rotten to its core we need to we need to get rid of them we need to transform them so they don't have uh the power to propagate these proprietary sentiments that own land and displace indigenous peoples and further kill and genocide um yeah just like captive populations like like black uh, black folks. It is tricky. Like I, I try not to be like so disparaging in like my experiences um, because I do want people to come, come into these spaces. But I feel like there's not a lot of examples of like autonomous resistance that does have abolitionist um, principles that is autonomous, meaning they're not necessarily being funded and i.e. controlled by government funding or certain sponsors yeah i i would just hope people create their own shit yeah i've i've just heavily been involved with more autonomous organizing that isn't funded by the state or government in response often to the the lack of resources that is more yeah community grassroots community oriented yeah
0: yeah it's it's a lot when words and practices become popularized and then like you say get um, co-opted and become something that they're not and also it's a lot to want to be able to give the words of caution and advice and also give people an opportunity to come into it however they need to come into it because we need more we always need more people we always need more people to to join and 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 throw down but also we need people who are going to be critical thinkers and think for themselves and also do the research. And and so I appreciate you lifting up this piece too, around how do we educate ourselves? I remember getting trained by, you know, one of the OGs out here in Oakland as part of the training was like, you need to do some kind of political reading every day. I want you to read five pages every day. And for him, that was something that was passed on to him from, you know, from being raised in a black Panther home and family I feel like when we don't educate ourselves, we don't show up in the best of ways. Depending depending what identities, what privileges we hold, so you can't find everything in the books. But some people have been there before and have said some really good things. So it's always it's always a gift to be able to learn. You know, one of the one some I remember something catching my attention on your Instagram page. How the term mutual aid has been used in ways I feel inauthentic and I was just so curious and I'm wondering if maybe you could tell us some I mean I know that you started to talk about you know some of the organizing some of the grassroots organizing you've done on the ground I'm guessing mostly in LA Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what's going on with mutual aid yeah mutual aid has become quite the
1: hot topic or just the phrase has become popularized since 2020, and I feel like there's a lot of people that were politicized and even radicalized um, in 2020 because of the moments of uh, not just the George Floyd killings, but the the just really intense um, increase of. Police killings, specifically of of black black people in um, the so called Americas, because it was it was George Floyd, Tony McDade, and there was another there was another woman, Kimberly. Uh, I forget. I'm sorry, I forget her last name. There was like three killings in a day, mm-hmm. and I remember when that happened, I told my roommate, I was like oh it's going to pop off like th- this is like going to to really really pop pop things off it was like boom like everyone all of this organizing was happening already you know with the kind of mutual aid that people were providing just for people with disabilities but also people were starting to acquire you know the disability of covid and so There was just so much that was being done in response to, you know, the pandemic, but it also led a really fascinating opportunity for people who have been just like in solitude in, you know, in their houses or apartments because of all of these like lockdowns and restrictions suddenly all these shootings were happening and people popped off and it was just a really, really beautiful moment. For me personally, I felt very, very affirmed. Some of my own relatives were like apologizing to me because they were like, I never thought like people would literally be talking about abolishing the police. And personally, they were like, "I I never thought about that either. And I'm always like, fascinated by like people's like even their hesitation around abolition like I, I still see some comrades and folk like asking questions about abolition but well, what are we going to do like what's going to happen when there is no police or state like what is actually going to go down you know these are these are valid questions out of like concern or anxiety and things like that And I think mutual aid was just one of those answers to that question. And, you know, people like Miriam Kaba kind of like put it on, on the map a little bit um, with an interview that she did. And Congress was literally like, right now we need mutual aid. And suddenly all of these mutual aid, you know, endeavor, like just financial asks uh, were being made, but also just these mutual aid projects um, in the form of, you know, tenant, tenant rights or cop watch or food programs and just all of these things kind of like came rushing out. And it was really, really beautiful. However, I think people rushed into the practice without acknowledging that this this was this was happening long before and then and even some people when they found out what mutual aid actually you know descended from or came from they tried to like abandon the the phrase or they tried to like turn it into something else and I find it really interesting yeah if you look at mutual aid or like the phrasing it comes actually from this russian anarchist named uh peter Kropotkin, and yeah he coined the term but how he established the term was by studying animals and indigenous peoples specifically of the americas specifically Haudenosaunee and iroquois nation peoples on uh their practices of you know mutuality of like being kind of like in harmony and in balance with one another and also being autonomous and not having necessarily like a governing body to like get them organized and tell them what to do and meeting each other's needs in mutual aids and in 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 mutual like understanding and that being like something that gives them more of an edge of survival than kind of western notions of natural selection when it when mutual aid was popping up in 2020 I was seeing these different kinds of you know organizers uh who are new to the scene being like oh yeah I guess I was practice. I didn't realize I was practicing mutual aid and I would always you know push back and be like well maybe you weren't maybe you aren't (laughs) because like so much of mutual aid does have these kinds of like anti-colonial and anti-state kind of analysis that aren't really for the purposes of reform and policymaking. They're, they have always been non-hierarchical. They have always been autonomous. And they haven't ever tried to transcend neoliberal practices of like making money like the end all be all. So now when someone says like, oh, I need mutual aid, most of them, if they have been organizing or involved in the practice after 2020, mean money. Right. Most of them are like, i I you know, can somebody help me with mutual aid, whatever?" And it's often just they they need money. And I think it's really important to make those distinctions as well uh, when talking about like, yeah, like a lot of us have like financial needs, but like the practice of mutual aid is actually to radically transform our social relations from utilizing money as the only kind of thing that's going to facilitate our interactions with one another mutual aid has its has its history of intertwining with abolition uh as well yeah it's it's intention with the kind of dominant uh narratives like voting like you know, profit making, profit driven kind of uh, efforts. good that we kind of like can, can make these like distinctions or like acknowledge that there's a difference between like when somebody is just like asking for donations or to distribute donations, even and, you know, projects that are about like, I don't know, like legal clinics or even health clinics or uh, herbal herbal redistribution kind of spaces. Uh, there's all kinds of different forms of mutual aid that aren't just like centered around around just dis- redistributing or distributing money. I think when I when I would pop off online when I was online, I was I was upset <laughs> mm. I, like seeing seeing all of these like liberals and rad libs alike talk about mutual aid in a, in a way that was like veering away from the original concept that was meant to basically abolish the state.
0: Thank you for that because I had no you know no idea a Russian dude um, coined it. There's a book by him it's a you know it's a very
1: problematic book because uh, it's called mutual aid um, but it does he was in opposition to Uh, Charles Darwin's natural selection Mm -hmm. because Charles Darwin was like no like capitalism like everything is survival like survival of the fittest whoever like wins comes out at the top it helps to establish the kind of manifest destiny ideas that white supremacists have and you know Kropotkin was like also an anthropologist and that that's really problematic but he he was also acknowledging that like you know yeah we we can actually work in unison with one another to meet each other's needs and like live a little bit more harmoniously like these indigenous people over here. I, I think, I think he even called like, just even like Marx, I think he called indigenous people savages as well. So I'm like, Wait. these aren't the best people to like look towards, but that does often acknowledge that like indigenous people throughout the world know what the hell they're doing Mm -hmm. when they're not organizing their livelihoods in accordance to you know this kind of like overseering state apparatus that exists like we can actually we can actually live without these kinds of imposed uh, nation states that are just a few centuries old as opposed Mm. to thousands of years of living without money without you know governmental bodies you know telling us where to go how to live and separating our lands with these like armed borders I think for me I'm like it's going it's going back to that I think like there's a lot of like people don't want to be that free you know people don't want to be that autonomous people Mm. not might not want to like have to do the work it takes to actually survive and engage with community in those kinds of, or even just living beings in those kinds of ways. It's kind of like, you know, mother great great mother nature is just, she's kind of demanding that. She's kind of like over being so controlled and um, being like uncared for and ignored. You know this is i i feel like that's where we're heading and all people could definitely learn from some of the people who have experienced these kinds of uh these kinds of harms i.e like black and indigenous people
0: You just say so much and so it's such uh. that my brain just went to like six different things because you know you just naming that like people want to be like we want we don't want this we're going to take this down da da da. but then when it comes to responsibility and what you said around doing the work of this is what it means now to be autonomous to be sovereign let's put let's let's do this work people get scared or people get lazy and i think the other piece around mother nature making these demands uh i think where this is it. We're in the apocalypse, you know? And I think if you, if people didn't get that when COVID hit and our whole world's got turned upside down overnight, it's like, this is, it's not some far away thing. Like one day when our, our, you know, the children's children um face the apocalypse, it's like, we're in it now. And I think that what you said about mutual aid being so centered on money is also the ways in which I see people's imaginations being very limited. You know, you mentioned um, earlier uh, Mariam Kaba and I'm reading her book, We Do This Till We Free Us. And one of the things that she was naming up front, like, oh, you want to be an abolitionist. Well, also, what are you creating and what are you envisioning and what are you dreaming? And I think that um, for me, there was a, a huge shift in my organizing where I realized that I was just too focused on taking down and and, and stopping things. And I'm like, but what do we do? Kind of like you're saying, like, okay, well, what if, you know, what if we, we win, then what do we put in its place? And it shows up in, in so many different ways. And, and we have to be creative and imaginative with like the smallest things and the biggest things. And I also, um, you know, in the recent years have heard Afrofuturism and what, what is Afrofuturism to you? Um, and why do we deeply need it? now in in the current Mm. in in our current society and given the current state of things
1: afrofuturism in my understanding it it's a relatively new new newish term there's lots of people uh who in in terms of like black sci-fi and fantasy uh have been utilizing just like those kinds of practices and dreamings and imaginings uh, of a future where we exist, where we are free, where we 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 might still be struggling, but we're we're struggling in different ways. We might be persevering. you know i I have always I have always talked about looking at it for looking at just the existence of of black people as well as the existence of indigenous peoples throughout the world as people who have have actually survived the apocalypse um, who have actually survived the ends of their world who have really had to manage an existence after everything that they, you know, had so much of their values, so much of their cultures, either being commodified or turned upside down, I think that the rest of the world needs to really catch up with, you know, acknowledging the leadership and just just the the kind of um, the know how of like, survive, because like, what what other people in this world would know how to survive another ending of a world than Black and Indigenous peoples? For me, a lot of my work is like, bridging the kind of, those kinds of gaps, and the kind of solidarity that has always existed. Something that you said that, that struck me, as far as like, more like abolitionist perspectives and what I don't like about most people who claim to say they're abolitionists is there isn't the yeah the analysis is there and the reason why I often might not even call myself an abolitionist sometimes is because I know I've lived in spaces where we're not just trying to do away with Punishment, culture, and violence, but also specific hierarchies mm. that exist in the world, social hierarchies that we are completely and utter- utterly inundated by. Whether it's, you know, like beauty standards, you know, just going to school, like what we're working towards, salaries, like there's so much hierarchy that exists that we are adapting into so much of our practices that is inherently colonial. You know, don't don't get me wrong, there's there's definitely other indigenous like groups or peoples in the world that, you know, had hierarchies amongst them, but never, never to a degree that we are, you know, being socialized within today. And I think, Uh, having having those kinds of like anti-hierarchical perspectives and living that like actually practicing that and employing that is really really integral to at least it is to my practice because I I've I've been in situations where other people are like yeah I'm anti-colonial or I'm decolonial, or even you know anarchists are like, I'm anti-hierarchical, but like they're they're not deliberately living in the ways in which they want to to see the world. And so much of afrofuturism is is making real, you know what we're what we're imagining. Um, I think a lot of, like, trans, you know, Black trans women, gender non-conforming people, we are the living embodiments of Afrofuturism because we literally had to dream ourselves into being into, you know, like, like there there wasn't, there weren't certain blueprints for people, mm-hmm. um, so Afrofuturism really kind of calls on, specific ancestral legacies combating the kinds of the slavery that has really relegated people other people's perceptions of us as these kinds of like commodity commodities but Afrofuturism acknowledges that like yeah for some of our ancestors there hasn't ever really been these kinds of These roadmaps that were super well established, Mm. um, these reading, even reading, even education, you know, some people didn't have these things to, to free themselves. There was no blueprint on like how to get away from your master back when chattel slavery was legalized. And I think like evoking those kinds of legacies is, is really, really powerful, especially yeah like in in a world that hyper focuses on you know yeah the readings of dead cis hetero white men I think it's really influential and important to note that like we can make our own damn blueprints I don't gotta read Marx I don't gotta read Kropotkin in order to deliberate myself in the in the now there's other things I can actually learn from I can learn from the land I can learn fighting techniques from you know other from other animals that might render you know a human being utterly you know incapable of like capturing me so yeah I also think that Alpha Futures is like almost like a a fugitive kind of landscaping like a Because you have to you have to also acknowledge that like black there's certain black people who were apologies for saying but like raped like literally raped into being and this has been happening for not just the centuries of the Americas, but also like you know, when you look at the like the the slave trade that was happening, what they call the Arab slave trade that was happening for 1000s of years prior to colonization, prior to nation states. Um, so this is why I kind of like often will harp on about like, like, we need to we need to hold black culture in the same kind of high, high regards. Um, as we might indigenous cultures here on these lands, because um, there's this catch twenty two that I'm seeing where like people might borrow or utilize specific like Ebonics or Black culture um, to you know to to just just to to borrow borrow that without like any real like cultural exchanges and the same cultural exchanges in ways that you might utilize for like indigenous practices or other other practices some of this is like a reflection of like the world's anti-blackness and I think like if in order for there to be a kind of future for black people I really do think that like this world has it, it really needs to have to cease to the institutions that currently exist have to cease to exist and henceforth, you know, the the world would kind of have to, you know, come to come to a screeching halt. So much of the world is foundationally anti black. So much of like people's collective unconsciousness is wrapped up in this kind of anti blackness. So yeah, it, it can feel it can feel a little I don't know, disparaging or uncomfortable for people, but I, I'm I'm comfortable in the the fact that if like, for example, the state ceases to exist, then black and uh, black people will not be killed by the police, specifically in a systemic way, and indigenous peoples won't be structurally like displaced by the hegemonic power of proprietary sentiments of colonizers, you know, I that was a lot. I said a lot, but um, I think, I just think that, um, yeah, like when, when I think of like Afrofuturism, like I, yeah, I, I think of just like you utilizing a kind of imagination that is your own imagination, your very own imagination, not so tied with and limited to the kind of scope and practice of nation states uh, that were historically formed, um, yeah, by uh, Eurocentric supremacy and yeah, that's the most. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm excited because I get to re-listen to this over and over again go into <laughs> editing. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and re-listen multiple times. I was just at a, at a conference and had the privilege of listening to um, Bettina Love, really amazing teacher. She just she just went in with like, if you're not celebrating us and if all you see is, is what's been done to us and you don't know us. And to bring it back to like right now in this moment, I think something that you said, how much... We, we have today, you know, if people really sat down and thought about all the words that they use that come from black folks yeah. all the music they listen to that like everything what what does it mean to really to really see acknowledge you know honor thank the contributions of black folks today Cause right right now you're getting so much medicine from what black folks are contributing and so we should always fight anti blackness what's happening to the black community and also can we please celebrate and see and affirm the black community for for all the things that you offer us that you have offered us and that you're offering us right here right now 100 mm-hmm,
1: percent. yeah i yeah i think it there's so much going on right now you know with these kinds of rollbacks and with every you know all these restrictions that are happening with like trans rights or right. or women's and and other people's like ability to reproduce like yeah, I think the yeah just with the abortion conversation and and so much that that's going on where you know, I think for me I think people really should acknowledge how coerced we are into responding to these kinds of like policy changes. The fact that anything can you know give you like just even even questioning the notion of right giving itself you know where does that come from why what what how are we prolonging this kind of coercive power that exists to give and take away rights Mm -hmm. you know can't there be can we do away with these kinds of powers that really restrict us um, to living and I think that's those are where some of like the the really powerful conversations are in my opinion is the ones that are really talking about autonomy and the ones that are talking about how like why why does the state and government have so much monopoly on resources and how, how are we going to liberate these resources from the restraints and restrictions of the nation state? Um, and I think, you know, people are slowly, they're slowly getting there. People are slowly getting uncomfortable. I feel like I, it was more of a possibility in 2020, but, you know, looking to our future, we, we have to stop pouring so much into these kinds of imaginary, imaginary valuations, really, of like, what's, what's important, you know, um, money and NFTs, and (laughs) it's just not, it's just not, like, it's not the most important thing, um, and I have a whole other rant when it comes to, like, NFTs and, like, the kind of, like, tech global industrial strategies really to get people to really value these material things that aren't really it that aren't really like the things that are keeping us alive like i can't drink an nft And nft isn't or money even right. isn't really going to provide me with the sustenance i need to, to live and survive or that like helps my family actually live and survive if you really really look at it if you're really really thinking about about you know transforming the way you relate to one another like I think that there's too much focus on them um and you know like the the metaverse or whatever the t- Facebook tech dude I forget what his name is I'm glad I don't remember his name I feel like they're really hoping that more people have an investment in the futures of these kinds of technologies and these tools that are completely made up that we can't really get sustenance from because it does the work of getting people to care less about the land, um, their community. It I, It further isolates people and I'm hoping yeah that people stay woke and you know ha- have have that in mind when they're they're maybe even forced to engage with these kinds of technologies because I yeah I don't want to make have to make an NFT to like to live I don't want to invest so much of like my time and space into into things that ultimately don't matter. And that are not only destroying the world or destroying the planet. I mean, the world is, I feel like the world is different from the planet. The world is like the civilized world of like money and institutions. The planet is like what we need for sustenance. So I think that, you know, there are certain things that are responsible for the plundering of, of the earth and the, wor- the, the planet that we need to disinvest uh, from in order to, and not just the, for the survivance of like of us, but like of like the land and like all of the, mm-hmm. of the other living beings that exist, you know?
0: Right, we like to think we're alone out here. It's like, um, nope, we are just one mm-hmm. tiny, tiny yeah. piece of the pie or of the puzzle.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: You have been, you know, involved in so much. Just wondering if there's any, any good work that's happening in L.A., any folks that you want to shout out as we come to a close today.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I want to give a few shout outs to a few groups and people that I know who are still doing amazing things. Shout out to Baby Anarchists. Uh, I don't know if you, you know, if people want to follow the Baby Anarchist page. They're like a, a group of really amazing femmes who just like incorporate really adorable artwork into their practice. They sell art, they do art, and then they also like make art for, you know, other groups that are doing really amazing things like Stop LAPD Spying or uh, Street Watch uh, LA, all those groups are great. And then also a homie of mine, um, Mama Maiz on Instagram, but also they run a space called Flora y Tierra. Um, It's out of uh, so-called Long Beach, uh, more in Tongva lands. And yeah, just support their work because they're really amazing. have known and have organized with them throughout the years very knowledgeable and um, I appreciate that it's also an autonomous community space out here that's like yeah providing a lot of like just knowledge and mutual aid and doula trainings and just just like the list goes on and on and I I know that they've just been they've been in it for for a long time um and appreciate them so much for my personal practice I haven't I think I've I've stopped naming the specific projects that I'm part of like as as you might know um I I have participated in some like, you know, some like kind of street medicking in, mm-hmm. in the past, but I haven't been very like as vocal because I can't stand idealization or people idealizing me. Um, that's actually an antithesis of like my political practice and my political philosophy in general. Um, I'm very much an anti-authoritarian, so whenever I get whiff of people, like, you know, pedestalizing me, it feels really, like, off, and, like, Mm -hmm. I'm, like, no, like, you, you can also do this work and, you know, save yourself, (laughs) but also, like, will respond and support you if if it's needed, but it's, like, you know, yeah, like, we kind of, like, having, like, a kind of kill your heroes mentality. You're, you are your own hero, um, you can do that, but if you want, like, you can still, still uh, subscribe to my Patreon, I do talk about some of the things that I, that I have done in the past without, like, necessarily naming the collectives, or, or like, there's some, there's some things that I am a little bit more open about in terms of you know kind of propaganda by the deed like acknowledging that like yeah like this is a great way to showcase that like that you too can do you too can go and support a an eviction defense uh space and like live in, in somebody's property so that they you know and protect uh their home spaces from either being bulldozed over by the, the state or from the police coming and like displacing, you know, your family, like you you can do that. Or yeah, I, I, I want to maybe not name uh, some of the more, the more elements of my organizing that might, the kind of organizing that might be like seen as like illegal. <laughs> like I don't want to necessarily name those things because there's ways you can still do the work and be like anonymous. And you can also practice security culture that isn't necessarily like displaying or incriminating yourself and your comrades. Sometimes people have to do things low key, not only because it's just a helpful way and culture to, to practice, but also because sometimes some of the people that you are supporting They might be targeted or in danger if your reputation is connected to them, you know? Mm. So, you know, yeah, just thinking about things like that. And it's like one of the grillion reasons why I'm no longer on social media, but also my own burnout required me to take like a, a giant leap back and just kind of like focus on my own healing for a little bit i i do have a patreon people can subscribe to at uh, patreon.com slash b-e-t-t-s u-r-e-v-o-l-t betsy revolt and yeah you can subscribe to whatever tier you would like i try to yeah i i'm having a hard time with like keeping up with the promises of like creating like a visual art piece every single month Mm-hmm. Um, but I have other, other content that I am providing. That's pretty much it for me.
0: A lot of content, a lot of amazing content. I'm a subscriber, and if you want to be cool, you should be a subscriber too. <laughs> As you could tell from this conversation, those of y'all tuning in, Ed Z does a lot. Etsy offers a lot I think you contribute just so much I mean you you contribute so much art so much creativity but you contribute just so much thinking so much analysis so much critique so much dreaming so much so much vision you know to to community and and so I'm I'm so happy to hear that you're taking time to heal and rest because burnout is so real when you're um, always on the front line and when you're always like, go, go, go. No lie. I really (laughs) liked having you pop up on my Instagram all the time, but I'm so glad that that you're doing this and y'all we need people need to rest and people need to be given the the space to rest and 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 the support in in resting and so much of the work has to be centered on our own healing you know talk about nature like there's cycles we're cyclical beings like reconnect your natural oh. cycles nobody's coming to save you y'all like do whatever work you could do in community. And that's how we take on the systems, right? That's the three levels we operate within. You got to do it too, but we also got to take shifts, you know, because it can't always be the same people. Yay for rest. Um, And I will definitely drop all of these links in the promotion and we'll share it on the socials that you're not on, (laughs) but to make sure that, (laughs) that folks can, can find all the all the sites. I'm I'm excited for people to to tap in and 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 get to learn more about the work that you do through your Patreon and just so very deeply deeply grateful for you taking the time to be here and just to to share and I feel like probably could have talked for like many more hours with you, probably many more days. It's just always such a gift. You know, please y'all pause, take notes, come back, re-listen. That's what a podcast is for. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Edzie.
1: Mm-hmm. Salamat and stay dangerous y'all thank you
0: yes i love that stay dangerous all right y'all and as always a reminder this episode was recorded on unceded lishan ohlone territory in the village of huchin um, may we always acknowledge honor and pay our respects to the indigenous peoples the culture keepers and the guardians of the land that we're living on Although that's only the first of many steps, land acknowledgements are not enough. If you're in the Bay Area, I hope you're paying your Shumi land tax, your yearly uh, contribution to the matriarchs who are holding down the critical work of the Sogarate Land Trust. And the beats that have been blessing our eardrums throughout this entire season were produced by Frisco's own Monk Heart to Stop and Everclear. Please follow them, tap in, and show them some love. Shukran for being here, for listening, for witnessing. Asalama. Peace, y'all.